So Richard, it's ten years since The Party's Over came out, which was certainly a book that turned my life upside down and, those <laughs> of, and the lives of many others, I suspect. So look, so I have a lot to I have a lot to answer for. <laughs> I'm afraid. Uh, this guy came up at this at this thing in um, uh, um, where was I? Austin, and he said, uh, "I read your book uh, four years ago, and after I read it, I gave up the really well paid job I had, and uh, and I moved into a falling down house. I thought, my God, he's going to burst into tears or something. Anyway, you know, it was a story that ended well. Um, what's your sense now, looking looking back on? that book in terms of you know, knowing what we know now and how things have changed and the sort of um, the explosion of unconventional mm-hmm. stuff how, how well do you feel looking back after 10 years that the analysis that you set out in that book has, has held up over that time uh, good question um, since it is the 10 year anniversary of publication I actually went back and read the book for the first time in years okay and I was actually quite uh, pleasantly surprised because in, in the book, uh, although I cite the analysis of a number of different um, uh, sort of peak oil theorists, if you will, the, the, the two people whose work I rely upon most are Colin Campbell and Jean Lyrere. And, uh, and if you read carefully what they were saying in 1998 and... and the next few years, what's actually transpired since then is essentially exactly what they were forecasting. Um, uh, they were forecasting a peak in regular conventional oil around 2006 or so, which is exactly what we've seen. Uh, yes, uh, crude oil production has increased in the last few years, but it's all been, all of the increase has been in uh, tar sands or tight oil um, from uh, North Dakota and Texas. If you, if you take those out of the picture, oil production today is below what it was in 2005, 2006. So that's correct. And they went further and said that uh, there would, uh, this would cause price increases which would incentivize more production of unconventionals. Now, they didn't specifically say, oh, we're going to get more oil out of North Dakota. But, you know, I mean, how, how, how specific do you need? I, I, uh, it, it's, it, to my interpretation, what they, what they were describing is exactly what we've been living through over the last few years. We've seen higher and more volatile oil prices. The, uh, the oil industry is spending twice as much on exploration and production, uh, and yet producing very little more oil. They're drilling twice as many wells, uh, and the major oil companies, the 10 top oil companies, have seen their their actual production decline by about 25% in the last decade. So if this isn't peak oil, I don't know what is. (laughs) Now, it's true there are some uh, sort of peak oil commentators who who were saying that the result would be almost immediate global economic crash and there would be riots in the streets and, and mass starvation and so on uh, you know, before 2010, and that hasn't happened. But that's not, if, you, if you pick up the parties over and read it, there's, you know, certainly mm. there's nothing in that book that would, that would uh, make such a claim. And the, the, the idea of that, the, that the party is over, which was sort of so strong in the book, yeah. I suppose, 
it was, there seems to be a kind of uh, <coughs> that the book has you know motivated lots and lots of people for whom the working assumption is that the party's over. Yeah. But I guess all, you know, our leaders are still desperately clinging to the idea that actually the party is sort of uh, um, revivable and that the party <laughs> is about to start swinging again with great gusto. Right. Uh, you know, based on all this sort of obsessive push for growth and <coughs> feels to make that happen. What's your take of that? Sort of the, the scale of of denial or over optimism that is kind of gripping our leaders at the moment. Well, you know, I wouldn't characterize their their attitude as one of optimism. I think I think their attitude is 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 veering more and more toward desperation all the time. But they they really don't they can't they it's a failure of imagination. They cannot imagine a plan B. The only uh, definition of success in their lexicon is more economic growth as in what we saw during the mid-20th century. And of course that's, uh, that's just not in the cards. And so that presents an impossible situation for them. All, they can, all they've managed to do so far is to, uh, and here it's not only governmental leaders but also uh, uh, heads of, of uh, central banks, all they've managed to do is is create a few years of sort of fake economic growth through massive deficit spending and quantitative easing and, and so on, uh, and that's that's staving off uh, economic collapse, but it's it's certainly not uh, capable of returning us to the you know the glory days of of uh, easy economic growth. So. Uh, I think there's a general understanding that that can't go on forever, that, that there are inherent problems to uh, deficit spending and, and central bank, uh, you know, the enlargement of balance sheets of the Federal Reserve and other central banks, massive. That, you know, that can't, that can't go on in perpetuity, but what else do they do? So uh, one, I've described this in, in one recent uh, essay as fingers in the dike. You know, we, we, with unconventional oil and with quantitative easing and deficit spending, we're managing to maintain the facade of, of normalcy, at least for a large segment of the population, certainly not for everyone, because every year more and more people sort of fall off the, the edges of, of, uh, of the table. Um, but you know, at what price in the long run? It, the longer we try to maintain this sort of false normalcy, the, the higher the cost in the end. You know, the worse the, 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 the crash will be once, it, uh, once these backstops fail. Mm. And the latest book you've just written, Snake Oil, has been looking at the whole fracking um, right. explosion. Um, which in the UK is being the thing that, that the government is grasping onto, assuming that the same thing that can happen in the US can happen in yeah. the UK, and that that's how the economy is going to be got going again. And uh, but you you argue there that actually fracking is a bubble and a really dangerous right. bubble. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. Well, uh, here in the US, there has been a very substantial increase in natural gas production as a result of uh, application of hydrofracking to 
um, shale deposits. Um, however, uh, there are only a few geological formations where this can be applied. And in each of those, there's only a small core area where production is prolific and, and profitable. And the drillers have, uh, in all of the plays so far except for one, the, the Marcellus, have already pretty much drilled out those core areas. And production is dropping. In the, the Barnett, which was the first of the shale plays, where that's where it all started, the Haynesville, which is the largest and most productive, uh, and so on. Um, so before, uh, bef certainly before the end of the decade, probably around 2017 or so, we'll, we'll begin to see uh, the, the, the end of the bubble. Already, uh, uh, companies that, that, came in, that got in late and missed the sweet spots are writing down assets and selling off leases. There are all the signs of a bubble burst there. Shell pulled out of somebody. Yeah, now, now most of Shell's assets were in, in liquid plays in, in, in Texas, but uh, in other words, oil. But um, but the same principle applies with with uh, tight oil as as with uh, 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 the the uh, shale gas. We we did a study at Post Carbon Institute called Drill Baby Drill. Uh, David Hughes, a retired petroleum geologist who worked for the Canadian Geological Survey. Uh, gathered um, all the available data, and, and our study, actually, we're, I'm very proud of it. It's probably the, the, the best study that's been done to date on shale gas and tight oil, and uh, um, it's, it's clear from the numbers that this is, this is a short-term uh, uh, boom. Now, is the same thing going to happen in the UK? I think it's extremely unlikely, first, because... Uh, uh, if, if, if it's such a short-term bubble here, is it likely to be any better there? No, probably not. But second, because the, the, uh, the this ownership structures are different. Here, it's all private landowners who stand to make a little money from drilling leases. So there's an incentive for people to accept the noise, the bad air, the... the compromise of water quality and all the other things that go along with fracking. There's the incentive to overlook those things because they're going to get some immediate economic bonus from it. Uh, but in countries where uh, subsurface mineral rights are owned by the, the government, there's no such incentive for ordinary people. And so when, when, when people you know, uh, are confronted with all of these, these you know, environmental and human health and uh, insults. They, you know, there's no, there's no reason they should go along with it. There's likely to be a much, much greater citizen backlash, and the citizen backlash here in the U.S. has been pretty substantial. The, uh, the a poll released just a couple of days ago showed that, uh, you know, Americans are generally opposed to more fracking. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, you know, that, that kind of that kind of backlash is, is likely to be much, much greater in, in the U.K. and other countries. And um, so you and I a while ago had a, had a debate, didn't we, on, on, online, the thing about uh, planned kind of dissent strategies or preparing for emergency kind of things. Yeah. What's your kind of thinking about those sort of issues now? Are you, if, if, if you sort of... 
Mm. Is that, are you still, yeah, just have an update on your thinking about that? You know, I'd, ha- I'd have to uh, go back and sort of... It was a while ago, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's the, I suppose, in the power down kind of scenarios, yeah. the building lifeboats and stuff, where do you think... It seems to be like the governments are dashing off over the sort of over the hill in the kind of yeah. uh, uh, last one standing drill baby drill scenarios. Right. And uh, but in terms of us as communities, which ones do you think we're left with? Right. Are we building lifeboats or are we power downing? Well, I think we st- we have to continue doing as much of both as we can. Uh, I a few minutes ago I, I mentioned the sort of uh, fingers in the dike scenario. We don't know how long these uh, these backstops are going to last. We don't know how long uh, uh, the quantitative easing and deficit spending can go on. Could be could be weeks. I mean, what what's going on in, with the U.S. Congress and, and the the, uh, the debt ceiling right now uh, could precipitate a global economic crash within a matter of, literally of weeks. On the other hand, it could be years. So we have, I think we have to assume that we have uh, time to, um, to, to build community resilience. But while we're doing that, it really makes sense as, as families, as individuals, to, uh, you know, to have, have a well-stocked cupboard. <laughs> be it, the the more prepared we are as 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 family as households for disaster, the more resilient our communities are. Right. You know, if you have a whole community where nobody has any food put by, nobody has any you know any backup systems ready, then the whole community is is much less resilient. And and there's every reason to for for people to have a sense of uh, preparedness and. But when I say that, I'm not. I don't want to encourage, you know, uh, kind of uh, survivalist mentality. It's it's quite quite the contrary. You know, uh, the what the, the big thing the survivalists miss is the understanding that there's o- the only way we'll get through this is together. Uh, if it's if it's lone individuals with shotguns, then. Uh, <laughs> Kiss, kiss the human race goodbye. Yeah, game over. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned the thing about what's happening here. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's no connection, but it was so. so but the, uh, the the government shut down the day I arrived. I'm sure it's not going to reopen again the day I leave. <laughs> if, if it does, I'll I'll uh, leave I'll sooner. Go, I'll get a bit worried. <laughs> um, but w- w- why? W- what are the implications of that? <clears throat> do you think? I mean, why? Why? What's? Wh- where could that? Where could that take this country? Is it? Is it? Could it be more than just? couple of weeks where people don't get paid and yeah. then it all goes back to normal or could the, could the outcome of it be more more serious? Oh yes, it could be very serious. Uh, I, what, this, is, this is revealing a fundamental political dysfunction within the country. Uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the insular and rightward drift of the Republican Party over the past uh, three decades is is really a, dramatic and um, you know one one can uh, argue whether a two-party system is a good idea but in order for a two-party system to to even work minimally you have to have two healthy 
political parties. Mm. And what we have right now is is one, uh, you know, establishment, uh, mainstream, center, marginally center left, but mostly center political party, which is the Democratic Party, and and one party that's basically gone crazy. And it's boxed itself into a corner, but it has a, a die-hard base that is so radicalized and so cut off from reality that nothing is going to come between them and and their cherished, you know, uh, nutcase candidates. Mm. They'll support them to the end. And I know, you know, is the is as. The, the crazier these these politicians get, the more the more support they have. So the incentives are actually for the. If you look at the incentives on both sides, they're they lead to a standoff and a constitutional crisis. And what and, and what's how is that going to? Surely that's something that just happens in the White House, right? I mean, how 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 does that? Uh, how does that create a knock-on that's going to ripple through the through the through the world economy? Well, if they fail to increase the the debt limit for the U.S., that uh, that will have enormous implications for the global economy. Certainly, for the U.S. economy, almost immediately, uh, interest rates would in the U.S. would skyrocket. Uh, the stock market would crash. Um, <clears throat> The U.S. dollar might cease to be the currency of account for for other countries. Uh, the the whole global economic and financial system would be would be uh, uh, hurtled back to the days of two thousand eight and and possibly much worse. And the whole th- the, the, the whole debt question, you know, is one of the things that you you explore yeah. quite a lot in the end of growth uh, and the degree to which. I remember the figure in the recent thing we did with, with Postcard and the thing with the share, you know, about how in the 70s every one dollar of growth cost one dollar seventy four in terms of debt and now it's five dollars sixty seven right. of debt. <coughs> how, how, how far can we just carry on going piling up those debts? At what stage, you know, isn't the Republican saying that let's not increase the debt ceiling, mm-hmm. isn't there a good aspect of that? Surely, you know, if the party may be over, but we still keep on borrowing to protect, keep the illusion going that there is a party. What's right. when is when is debt a good thing, and when is debt a bad thing? Well, debt is a good thing in the present instance only to the extent that it ena- enables the uh, business as usual to continue for a while, so that people like you and I can go about our business and and try to help systemically to, mm. to build more resilience in society. Uh, it's certainly not helping in, in I mean, to, it, buying more time otherwise is probably not a good idea because it just means we're, we're, uh, we're going further out on, on a limb as a society from an ecological standpoint. So the argument could be made that the Republicans are doing everybody a big favor by forcing the issue and, and, and basically forcing a, a global economic crash sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a bit uh, torn with that one, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit extreme, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're sitting here in your very beautiful garden full of fruits and nuts and 
know, you've been writing about this stuff for, for 10 years and you know been one of the world's sort of foremost kind of analysts of all of these issues what what does it what does Richard Heinberg's how does Richard Heinberg's daily life kind of reflect those things what what does you know because it's, it's quite clearly it's not just you're not like one of those academics who is able to just study something and then have a life that completely doesn't reflect that yeah. you know how, how, how does all of that re um, appear in your daily life mm -hmm. well you know my wife Janet and I have have spent the last actually more than 10 years probably more like 20 years uh, trying to develop as much um, you know self-sufficiency and ecological sanity in our lives as, as possible and I'm, I'm, we're, we're proud of, of what we've done so far but at the same time we're painfully aware of uh, what we haven't done and what's really hard to do and, and uh, uh, so we we just have to content ourselves with what we can do uh, uh, we we, we're happy to have friends and neighbors who are who are supportive and and uh, and and we we try to encourage them also and, and, and work with them uh, <coughs> and with all sorts of you know interesting local efforts at uh, creating community energy and and uh, uh, and so on. Is it enough? No. <laughs> but you know at the end of the day we, we, we have to do what we can and enjoy life I mean it's this life is a gift and we don't know how how many more days of sort of normal life we, we have so uh, you know being with friends and family playing music being out in the garden spending time with with nature you know um, this is not something to take for granted mm. I suppose the, the last question would be now looking back Ten years after the party's over came out, are you? And, and it's been translated into lots of different languages. Are you able to get a sense of of its impact, of its legacy as a as a publication at this mm -hmm. stage? Well, I wouldn't want to, you know, try to uh, be too sort of bombastic about that. Uh, it, it's one of of a number of books about peak oil that had been written. I think it, it probably was one of the more influential ones. Certainly it, it, it didn't have the highest book sales of, of any. I think uh, uh, Jim Kunstler's uh, Long Emergency sold two or three, four times uh, what the Parties Over did. But I think the Parties Over appealed to uh, uh, folks who were um, perhaps a, a little more open to or interested in um, a communitarian response to, to the, the peak oil crisis. Um, and, um, you know, I've met thousands of people over the past decade uh, who, who are doing amazing things in their own lives and in their communities. And I feel, you know, very um, um, happy to have had some positive influence. Thank you. Well, it certainly had an enormous impact on me anyway. And it had the best <laughs> cover of any of the people's books as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had nothing to do with that, actually. <laughs>
was all the British publishers doing. Do right. you know the story of that? No. Yeah, well, the, the original uh, North American cover was pretty, you know, um, pretty bad, actually. And then the, the British publisher chose a completely different cover. And, and, uh, and then when, as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, that's it. You know, we've got to have that. And, the, and I had to talk the North American publishers into it. First, they thought it was too, too depressing, you know. And, and then the, the British publisher wanted money for it, and, uh, and I had to really insist. And, of course, you know, everyone says what, what a great cover it was now. So. <laughs> I was right.